0: You know, sometimes it can be fun to, you know, in a in a kind way, take advantage of people being in kind of a rut of how they're thinking and kind of surprise them. I recently re- read a list of recommended things that you could do to get strangers smiling. One, you know, at, at work, if some of you work in an office building with an elevator, you can just take your your swivel chair into the elevator and sit there facing the back of the elevator and when one of your coworkers steps onto the elevator just kind of spin yourself around and say we've been waiting for you. <laughs> you could go to a donut shop go down to Jack's Donut, buy a donut and then complain that there's a hole in it. <laughs> I like this one especially. Order a pizza. Five minutes before New Year's. You probably have to be in Indianapolis to do this and get it delivered. But order a pizza five minutes before New Year's. And when it comes, joke with the delivery person, I ordered this last year. (laughs) This morning we find three situations where people need to change their thinking about Jesus. We find Jesus surprising them as he teaches or behaves differently than what they expect. As Jesus often did, he was changing the way that people thought about God and about how they thought about their sin and salvation and, most importantly, how those all intersect, how they thought about him. Much of his ministry was about helping with this paradigm shift of people's thinking, which would lead to a paradigm shift in their heart, which would lead to a paradigm shift in their lives, their behavior. The Apostle Paul explains the paradigm-shifting ministry of Jesus in this way. This is what he was getting across with his gospel. Did I say Paul? This is the Apostle John. The Apostle John writes in John 20, verses 30 through 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, being the gospel of John, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is pointing out that Jesus' miracles were signs like an arrow pointing down to Jesus saying, Messiah, Savior, in order that people might believe that he is the Christ. Matthew describes this Galilean portion of Jesus' ministry like this. And if you remember from Matthew 4 verse 23 and when and he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people and and, and the purpose of Jesus healing people didn't change In what Matthew writes about, from what John writes about, his healings were for the purpose of expressing the kingdom of God has now come, and guess who the king is? And the signs that were being communicated by his healing was pointing to him, King Jesus. Jesus did what he did to prove who he is, Savior, King, the God-man, the Messiah, I love statements that get us thinking differently, statements, quotes that, that kind of help us to make a paradigm shift. Peter Drucker said this, efficiency is doing things right. Effectiveness is doing the right things. Ooh, Yeah, that's, a, that's kind of a head-scratcher. Or, or Harry Truman said, imperfect action is better than perfect inaction. Or this uh, anonymous one, every day may not be good, but there is something good in every day. These statements kind of remind me of one of my movies that, in my weird, uh, eccentric uh, taste, uh, the movie Mystery Men, there was a character named the Sphinx, and he was always making statements like this that you just sit there going, that makes no sense. But, you know, just kind of mixing words around, but the last one here, if if you want something you never had, you have to do something you've never done. Kind of paradigm shifts. Uh, Each one of these statements are kind of like, you need a paradigm shift. Statements like this can help us to be motivated to get out of a rut in our thinking. And sometimes if... uh, uh, If our thinking is is off kilter, they can kind of stop and make us think, okay, what am I really after in the first place? I want to encourage you this morning, upgrade your thinking on Jesus. Make that paradigm shift for the better. Our verses show the need for people to upgrade their thinking, to make that paradigm shift about Jesus as they observe him forgiving and healing and calling his followers and inviting his followers to celebrate his presence. We, three that in, we see that in three different instances, experiences of people with Jesus here this morning. First I want to challenge you here. Upgrade your thinking on Jesus from miracle worker to God himself. We see a story that is Pretty familiar in Sunday school curriculum, but Matthew leaves out some details that were kind of like, why wouldn't he talk about that really cool aspect of it? But first we see Jesus uh, traveling back across the Sea of Galilee. This is during his Galilean ministry, which is around the Sea of Galilee, the the region of Galilee at that time, and that included being over in the Gentile east uh, side of the Sea of Galilee. Where, if you recall, that there was um, some two men that were demon-possessed. And Jesus commanded those, that legion of demons to leave those men. And he uh, granted their request of being sent into a herd of pigs. You're not going to see a herd of pigs over on the, gen- the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. That's for sure. Um, and 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 what went on from that. but But so we see now he's traveling... Back across the Sea of Galilee where it describes, and getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city, his own city being Jesus' center of ministry, his his, um, home base of ministry around in the Galilean region, Capernaum. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Mark 2, if you want to do a deeper dive into this, uh, you could uh, study Mark 2 and Luke 5, where this story comes up again. And you might remember from Sunday school or previous readings of this, that this is the man that is carried on his bed by four friends and they're coming to uh, the building that Jesus is teaching in and there's such a crowd that they can't get inside so what do they do they go up to the top of the roof every all these places had had uh, you know the second story was the roof and they dug through that roof and they lowered their friend down so I see these details that Mark and Luke include and Matthew does not. So I'm like Matthew is wanting to get to the point here. And so it's, it's easier to figure out what is Matthew's point uh, by what he leaves out really. So when Jesus, it says when he saw their faith, this is the faith of the men that brought their friend. He says to him, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. This is a pretty caring, fatherly statement. We don't see Jesus, not that that he doesn't love other people in the same way, but here it's such a compassionate when he says, Take heart, my son. the, The term forgiven here means to release from moral obligation or consequence, to pardon someone's sins. Jesus isn't necessarily saying, that sin led to the paralysis. He's not saying, I'm going to fix your paralysis by forgiving your sins. One reason we know that is the man didn't, Jesus didn't forgive his sins and then the man stands up. But what anyone, this is not what anyone is expecting to hear him say. That, that's key. That that's, that's really stands out here. The whole idea is, take heart, my son. Be healed. No, that's not what he does. But Jesus is making a point that he is God, and the scribes that are standing there, these, these members of the Jewish uh, leaders, point out they they make the claim this man is blasphemy, he, he, which means to speak in a disrespectful or demeaning, or denigrating way that maligns God. They're giving their expert opinion that Jesus is demeaning or maligning God by claiming a right that only God has. That's why they said he's blaspheming, because the the understanding, as correctly it is, only God can forgive someone's sins. There will be a major change, actually, in Jesus' ministry as we get to to chapter 12. Due to the, the religious leaders' continued blasphemous accusations of Jesus, from that point forward, he will only speak to them in parables. Because, as he describes it, they are actually the ones blaspheming the Holy Spirit because the gospel is being clearly displayed before them, and they are refusing to believe it, to accept it. So we continue on in verse 4. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But notice the purpose of Jesus' healing. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He's he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus points out that their thoughts are actually blasphemous. Their thoughts are evil. So by accusing Jesus of the evil of blasphemy, the people are actually committing blasphemy by claiming that Jesus, being a man, couldn't do what only God can do. They missed the point. He is the God-man, 100% God, 100% man. In the end, Jesus showed his authority by he, to heal in order to prove that he has the authority to forgive as God himself. And I think Matthew shares what he does to encourage us to upgrade our thinking on Jesus from a miracle worker to God himself. I also think that the crowd responded as we should, as we should respond to the fact that Jesus provides forgiveness. He provides for forgiveness by the sacrifice of himself, the very reason he was able to Forgive this man of his sins knowing that he was going to pay for this man's sins on the cross. Those who saw this were struck with fear because Jesus was doing only what God could do. And hopefully they got the point that he is the God-man. What they didn't know is what we know now. Is that this man's pardon would be purchased by Christ's blood. You know, I remember hearing of a story of a man, it's, it's not necessarily an actual account, but, but a man was graduating from college and his, his dad, who he was very close to, passed away before his graduation. And his expectation, amidst his grieving, he, he at least looked forward to his expectation that his dad had planned to give him the 57 Ford Thunderbird that they had worked on together throughout his high school and college years. And so when, when uh, it came time for him to receive gifts of graduation and things like that, his widowed mother handed him a gift from his dad, and it was a book. And he looked at it, and he was disappointed. And he didn't say anything, and he thanked her, and, you know, didn't even like, he was just kind of like, okay, so kind of a couple of days went by, and he, he's kind of processing it, trying to figure out, and he was like, maybe Dad had something in this book that was more valuable than the car that we loved together. So he opens the book, and he sees that within the book, it has been cut out between the pages is a key. But it wasn't a key to the car. It was a key to a safety deposit box. And he and he goes to the bank and he opens that key to the safety deposit box, and there in the safety deposit box is the car. But along with that are notes. Along with that are are. Our expressions of love, our our journals of describing uh, how his father felt and thought through the years of working on that car together. Along with that, it was a continued relationship that, that he could continue to experience with his dad on top of the gift of that car. Jesus is about so much more than we usually come looking for from him. But he doesn't stop and go, you think I'm just that? Forget you. Now, so often, just as, just as John says, I'm writing these things that are amazing you, that are, that are you should be celebrating that Jesus can do these things, but it's so that you might know him as your Savior. Matthew's writing about Jesus' lordship, the fact that he is King Jesus that he reigns, so that we can know him as our king. And our, the purpose of us reading of these things about Jesus is to upgrade our thinking, but also upgrade our relationship with him on a daily basis. Forgiveness of sins is amazing. We're also forgiven so that we might have freedom and that we might have access to God. It's so that we could come with confidence to the throne of grace, to find grace and help in time of need from our dad who sits on that throne. Secondly, I want to challenge you, upgrade your thinking on Jesus from the sin forgiver, which is great. We just learned that he he not only can heal, but he forgives sins, but, but also from sin forgiver to life changer. We read, uh, moving forward, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Yeah, the one that wrote this. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. You've got to love how Matthew refers to himself. Oh, a man called Matthew. Reminds me of one of my professors, Dr. Michael McDuffie, who's from New Hampshire. And, and uh, you know, he, I remember him explaining in one of our first classes with him at Moody, he says, When God, in his sovereignty, looked down into the woods of New Hampshire and chose for himself one lumberjack named one Michael McDuffie. That's what I think of when I hear Matthew saying, and he called to a man named Matthew. He's a tax collector. And so this is Different than, say, Zacchaeus, being that he's in Capernaum. He's there next to the Sea of Galilee. He's kind of close to a trade route and stuff like this. He's more of like a customs agent that made sure that that Rome or King Herod got their cut of the value of the goods, especially the fish that came out of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Probably this uh, Matthew had dealings with Peter and James and John and other disciples from the area uh, in having to do with, um, okay, how much fish you have there? Okay, so you owe this much in customs that's going to go to Rome, that's going to go to King Herod, Rome's puppet king. You got to love the simplicity of the calling and the response. Follow me, Jesus says. And he rose and followed him, leaving his tax booth. What Matthew needed was to follow Jesus, to walk with him in a saving relationship that would give an eternal purpose to his life. And this led Matthew to hosting Jesus for a meal along with those who would eat at a tax collector's house. And that basically was only other tax collectors and sinners. And sinners, this is by the Pharisees' definition. So this would be anybody that basically said, I'm not, I'm not up for, for this Pharisaical way of life. Who I, I, I can't live that. I'm going to do my own thing. And this, isn't necessarily, this didn't necessarily lead to uh, a fruitful and helpful life. That's not what I'm talking about. They're unsavory people who are outcasts according to the Pharisees' standard. We continue reading, and when the Pharisees saw this, saw Jesus eating in this house of Matthew with other tax collectors and unsavory people by their definition, they said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, but when he heard it, speaking of Jesus, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's quoting from Hosea. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees voice their, their shock over Jesus' involving himself so intimately with sinners. According to their rules, this would make Jesus unclean before God. This would make it so that he can't go to the synagogue. He can't go to the temple and worship. And once again, Jesus responds to the objection of religious leaders. Remember that it was the scribes before? Here we see it's the Pharisees. And he equates his involvement with sinners as being necessary to his cause. To call people to salvation, to call people into his kingdom. The scribes in verses 1 through 8, they take issue with Jesus' words. Here in this area, the Pharisees take issue with Jesus' acquaintances. The scribes uh, back in verse 8, uh, they uh, complain that only God can forgive sins. And you imagine Jesus standing there and thinking, Uh, That means that I'm God. Here the Pharisees complain that Jesus shouldn't associate with sinners. And we imagine Jesus thinking, that must mean that I came to help sinners. Jesus speaks from authority of a teacher and assigns the Pharisees some homework here. He says, go and learn what this means. Quoting from Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The statement is in Hosea, in this statement, God is rebuking Israel for their ritual accuracy while they care nothing for God's priorities. Essentially, Jesus is telling these religious leaders, Mm-hmm, that's you. You're those people. What's sad is that the Pharisees were missing the miracle in what God, in what was going on. Matthew, a tax collector that they thought was beyond hope, was experiencing new life. He wasn't going to be a tax collector any longer. He was going to become more righteous by spending time with Jesus And sadly, all the Pharisees could see is what he had been. And they couldn't imagine him being anything else. That is not what Jesus is about. They didn't even see his sin as forgivable, to be honest with you. You know, this is unforgivable that you've been this. Therefore, Jesus... Why are you even messing with him? That is not what Jesus is about. They needed to upgrade their thinking on Jesus from sin forgiver to life changer. You know, as often happens, Jesus provides us with the perfect illustration of what he's getting at. An illustration is just a common everyday thing that helps us to better understand something that is not common and everyday to our thinking. And, you know, a person goes through medical school so that he can have a positive impact on those who are sick. What good does it do for a doctor to avoid sick people? And what Jesus goes on to point out here is that the Pharisees were actually in a more dangerous situation. They needed a doctor, but they didn't even know it. You know, my daughter sees it all the time as a nurse in the emergency room of Eskenazi. That a patient is brought into Eskenazi by ambulance, and, and they, they're doing everything that they can to get out of that place as soon as they possibly can. And They're going to leave AMA against medical advice. And it's like the staff are like, okay, well, you wouldn't have been brought in here by ambulance if you didn't need to be here. Sometimes they're actually brought in by ambulance a little bit later and they still have the wristband and the booties still on from their previous trip to the ER. But there's very little that can be done if they refuse to admit that they need help, that they need treatment. What would be uh, even a step further of like what can we even do here is if the doctor were to walk in and the patient hops up and says, Oh, you know, I'm glad you came in to see me. Hop up on the bed and give me that stethoscope and let's take a listen to your lungs. It's like, um, I'm the doctor, you're the patient. And in their self-righteousness, the Pharisees are looking at Jesus like, listen, if you're the Messiah, you understand that you're one of us. Like, you understand that, like, we're we're supposed to be highest on your priority, Uh You should see that we don't even need salvation, and and you wouldn't be messing with these guys. The point that Jesus leads into is not just that he came for the sinner, but he can't help anyone that does not recognize that they are a sinner. This is what was being gotten at by Jesus in his first beatitude at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry, we're not going back there. But he opens it up by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a recognition, I need a savior. And until somebody recognizes that, Jesus can't help them. He can help them recognize that, praise the Lord. The first step toward salvation is recognizing that you need it. And salvation then begins a process that transforms your life. Much like the outcast tax collector. The sinner that left everything to follow Jesus and eventually would write Jesus' story. Lastly, I want to challenge you. Upgrade your thinking on Jesus from the tradition keeper to the life of the party. We read another instance uh, shortly thereafter here, I believe. It says, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. John's followers are... are, are uh, uh, they're a little bit more understanding of who Jesus is than the scribes and the Pharisees that we've seen so far. But we still see a misunderstanding of Jesus on their part. You'll recall that John the Baptist, these are followers of John the Baptist, he was the forerunner of Jesus, letting people know the Messiah is coming, the King is coming, the kingdom of God is coming. He was more ascetic. He was more self-denying. That was part of his calling. He was, had a ministry of it was a ministry of people setting apart themselves to be prepared for the Lord, to be sensitive to His uh, coming, to be to be uh, more aware of and prepared for who He is by detaching themselves a little bit from the world around them. And John had disciples that were following him. <clears throat> and there's more than one occasion where John's disciples are confused about Jesus' ministry. And there were moments even where they were a little concerned about Jesus' popularity. So there was just there they, they were making a paradigm shift here as well. Regarding fasting, we talked uh, back on the in the Sermon on the Mount about its value and, and how it can be. Uh, just a religious or or ritualistic practice. The Pharisees fasted two times a week, and John's disciples probably did something similar. Fasting is a way to decrease our reliance on something earthly in order to increase our dependence on God. It can be that simple. Jesus responds to their question with an analogy. Imagine a Jewish wedding, and a Jewish wedding involved a seven-day feast, a, a, a celebration that would span over seven days. And it would not be appropriate, and John's disciples would understand this, it wouldn't be appropriate for them to tell the bride and the groom, I'm sorry I can't come to your feast tomorrow, that's my regular day of fasting right this is a celebration if they were invited to this wedding with a 7-day celebration it would be understood i'm going to set apart this minor issue of fasting in order to celebrate with this couple in order to celebrate with my friend the bridegroom and essentially jesus is saying my presence is a really big deal you fast in order to go get closer to god i'm here I'm standing right in front of you. The time would come when Jesus' disciples would mourn. They would fast. This was likely when he was in the grave. And fasting can still be a good thing. But it should have the purpose of helping us to better appreciate Jesus' presence with us as his disciples. To stop and say, Why aren't your disciples doing this religious practice? It's getting the cart before the horse, right? Jesus is more important. He's saying, they're enjoying every moment that they can get with me right now because my presence is what it's all about. I'm the life of the party, if you will. Jesus' next statements hammer home the principle that's involved with this he says no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made so in other words we don't we don't really patch things anymore like we buy jeans that need patching right uh but but uh in those days and and you know what we would do today if you were going to patch something let's say you're going to Put you know like a bandana you know patch on a, a shirt you know because maybe that's that's cool or something um, and, and we you would you've got this shirt that's been washed several times but the bandana you would ma- want to make sure and wash it first because it's going to shrink a little bit because if you did that before it were to wa- washed and you sewed it in there then you wash it and the bandana would shrink and then the shirt would be all kitty wampus. Right, well, in that day, it was kind of like they didn't like wash something in a in a high temp washing machine like that it would be the the age of the cloth, and if they were going to patch if if you know Dad comes in from work and he's like, "Ah, oh, my cloak's got a big hole in it you know well mom would would she would try to find a piece of cloth that was around the same age. Because then they had experienced both pieces of cloth that were going to be combined. They had already experienced the same stretching and the same shrinking. And, and she, she could know, I'm going to sew this on here and it's going to stay as it is. He goes on to say, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. Uh, this goes back, I, I, I had some pictures and I forgot to put them uh, on here for you. Um, like, if you look at a traditional wineskin, it's really gross to me. Um, it basically looks like an animal with no feet and no head. And and they just kind of tie those ends off. It's it's the skin of the animal. And then they fill it with wine that hasn't fermented yet. But it better be a new skin, because as the wine ferments, it's going to expand that wine skin. And that's what was uh, amazing. That's why they would use the, the hide of an animal because it had that flexibility. It was going to be able to expand as the wine fermented. And I don't know if it's the wine that expands or if there's gases in there or something like that. So if they, if they emptied out that, that skin of that animal and they were like, hey, let's use this again. Well, it's already been expanded. It's not going to be all that helpful because you're going to put the grape juice in there and it's going to grow inside that skin and eventually it's going to get to the point where that skin is done expanding but that wine is not done fermenting so the wine is just going to bust out and it's all going to be a waste. He says, but new wine is put in fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. The point here is empty traditions can't express or embody the radical nature of the gospel empty traditions this isn't saying all traditions are bad empty traditions can't express or embody the radical nature of the gospel again Jesus provides us with an analogy that illustrates the point the patching of the garment the wineskins themselves the Gospel called for setting aside those traditions that embodied pre gospel concepts okay this is this is why uh, Hebrews is saying, "Why go back to the temple? There is no sacrifice that remains. there's no more sacrifice that needs to be done because the sacrifice has happened that's like trying to to uh, put the gospel in this Old Testament sacrificial system, it's not going to work. Adamant use of long-standing tradition to express something new is seldom a workable solution. I recall hearing about a pastor that that read a letter to his congregation. And this was probably like the late uh, 20th century, 1900s, you know, like in the 1990s or something like that. And he says, I want to read to you a letter that's been written, and it says, Pastor, I can't believe that we would desecrate God's sanctuary with an instrument that is used by the world for, for, for men and women to revel in drunkenness and, and for them to, to uh, just do all sorts of worldly things Why would we bring this instrument into God's holy place? What's interesting is that the letter was written in like the 1300s, and it was talking about the pipe organ, because originally the pipe organ, I don't know if it's the pipe organ or the pump organ, you know, but anyways, it was in the bars, it was in the pubs, it was, it was, somebody would play it, and they would get everybody singing, they usually had to have a few of them in them before they would, before they'd start singing, I guess, but. The idea is that, that to stop and say, uh, no, we have to have this present. We have to be doing this exact thing. We have to be doing this in this way. Again, is getting the cart before the horse. It's allowing the form to rule over the function. Now, we have been given two things by our Lord that we should be about um, on a regular basis. And that is the Lord's Supper and baptism. Really, anything beyond that, I don't, I don't want to elevate it to a place of, well, this is what we should be doing on a regular basis. Anyways, I digress. Are hymns the only thing that can be sung in church? I think you know our thoughts on that. What's funny is how in some churches that were started during the days of praise music, that, that they were like, this is what makes us unique we sing songs that are new. We sing songs that are, that are fresh, that are expressing uh, our relationship with God. Some of those churches now, that's, those are the only songs they sing because they're the sacred songs. We should sing whatever glorifies God by honoring His truth and what helps us to express our love for Him. Should communion be done in a certain way or on a certain schedule? Sure, if that's what helps a body of believers to better express and remember Christ's sacrifice for them. But if the frequency of it should cause it to lose its significance, the body should seek what's best for God's glory among them. Because we're walking in relationship with Him. He can lead that. Younger generations shouldn't expect to wear, shouldn't be expected to wear certain things or keep their hair a certain way but they should be challenged to allow the Holy Spirit to set them apart from the world around them. You know, a pastor was getting an earful from one of his congregants about how dissatisfied he, thinks he were, was about how things were and the changes that were taking place that were knocking him off kilter. And he said to the pastor, Reverend, if God were alive today, he would be shocked at the changes in this church. I'm sure it didn't take long for him to, to really think about what he had said. But that's really what it's about. God is alive, and he can lead. He can guide. We should all, both corporately and individually, be pressing ourselves into our relationship with him. Jesus is alive today, and he's still into upgrading our thinking about him. And Jesus didn't come to make our old life better. He came to give new life. With the paralytic, the paralytic didn't just walk away with just new legs. And in the same way, Jesus didn't come to heal the body, but to bring new spiritual life through forgiveness. As with Matthew, Matthew was overcome by a relationship with his new master. And Jesus, in the same way, didn't come to us to bring forgiveness, but to change the direction of our lives as our Lord And with the traditions that John's disciples were getting hung up on, Jesus ushered in a new paradigm of living in light of the fact that the Messiah has now come. The same way Jesus doesn't come to just add new activity to our old life, mixing law and grace, but to give us new life that cannot be held by legalistic traditions. Not all traditions are legalistic. But every now and then you've got to sacrifice a sacred cow if it becomes one. Let's bow our heads together. Jesus, thank you for your presence. Thank you for the opportunity to walk in relationship with you and dwelt by your Holy Spirit to pursue a unity of your spirit. To be filled with your spirit, controlled, surrendered to you, guided by you. Thank you, Lord God, that, that you fill the places in our hearts and lives that we open up for you. Eagerly desiring more of your presence, more of your reign, more of your lordship. Lord, thank you that you came to forgive, but you didn't just come to forgive, you came to change lives. And thank you for the need to evaluate traditions. Thank you for the need to evaluate customs and and ritual and ceremony. To ask the question, does this still point us to Christ? And to anticipate that you can answer that. I pray, Lord God, that we would be a people, corporately and individually, that are led by you, that are surrendered to you, and have that joy of walking with you. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name.